you know, I, I see the paintings in my head, but there's a lot of wonderful, wonderful painters who've worked uh, realistically, who have said so much through their paintings. The, the written word is not necessary. All of the energy is right there, and you can see it. Hello, and welcome to Articulated. My name is Reggie Reed, and I'm an oral history intern for the Archives of American Art. And I'm Sabina Lipton. I'm an archival processing intern here at the Archives. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been building the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These more than 2,500 long-form interviews give witness to history as it unfolded through the voices of the figures who shaped and reimagined it. This episode is the second in a series of six, each curated by a contemporary artist in response to and in conversation with past speakers from the Archives Oral History Program. Our guest is Maya Cruz Palileo, a painter based in Brooklyn, and they chose to focus on the 2011 oral history of Kate Walkingstick, a Cherokee painter whose work attends to women's sexuality, native heritage, landscape, and the relationship between humanity and nature. Family storytelling is at the heart of oral history, and Palileo described the importance of orality in their family and for the early foundations of their artistic practice. Palileo connected with Walking Stick's oral history for their shared grappling with the influence of family, as well as the expressive and exploratory powers of art. I started to think about oral histories more when I started to make my own artwork, and it ended up that I was interested in my family's stories. And even as a young child, I would always ask my Lola, my grandmother, uh, about stories about my father and my aunts and uncles and what their life was like in the Philippines because, you know, I was born in Chicago and they came from the Philippines in the early 70s. So it was very natural, I guess, to ask these questions. Um, but then when I started to make my own work, I started to think about sort of the nature of oral histories and how they are passed down in a way that is up to the person who's telling the story. And then I got curious about, you know, what was not being told or what, how they were choosing to talk about their histories or their experiences and what they chose to include and what they chose to edit out. And that became really interesting for me as an artist to think about the things that weren't included. And then when I started to do my own research uh, into um, the larger histories between the Philippines and the United States, a lot of the things that I started to learn about were not included in those stories. So I, 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 not to say that those stories aren't, I mean, they are still the experiences of my relatives. And so once I started to do that research, the context became very apparent. Things like why they all speak English. And, you know, that has to do with the American education system in the Philippines and, and colonization. And the oral histories is what, what really brought me to that. And then also hearing more stories that continue to shape and shift the quote-unquote history, I guess, of my family, that 
is kind of an organic living thing that isn't fixed in uh, in a in a book or and then I in turn will tell these stories and they're going to change and shift and I just love that malleable quality of of uh, spoken history oral histories and then of course who's telling the story is so important as well the significance of passing down family stories and a long entanglement with painting drew Leo to walking six oral history and work I, I felt a lot of resonance in the way that she, you know, learned about where her family comes from and their family history. You know, I think that definitely informs a lot of the work that she makes, but also just in in terms of her, you know, reading about how she got interested in or her earlier work um, and going to grad school and, you know, making making work about her father. And, you know, I just, I just really related to that in terms of being an artist and sort of being in that place of discovery of what, what do I really care about and what am I making work about? Walking Sick was born in Syracuse, and she spent most of her childhood in idyllic upstate New York, where her mother instilled a strong sense of self-assurance. Here's how she describes her mother's influence in her 2011 oral history my mother always said, it's an honest job, it's a good job. And that's true. <laughs> my mother was, you know, you talk about big influences in your life. My mother was the big influence in my life. Okay. Wasn't a teacher, wasn't an artist, it was my mother. She was, uh, she was a Victorian lady. She was a little Victorian lady. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had this kind of Victorian sensibility in a way. But in another way, she was really very modern. Uh, you have to think, she was born in 1898. She was, that's a long time ago. That is a long time ago. And it was a different culture. Yeah. And every day she said to me, smart little girl like you ought to make something of herself. And then she'd say, you know, it's a man's world, okay? All you have to do is be better than the men. <laughs> and, she's, and you know you can be. That was unusual for that time. You I'm bet. Sure. You bet. And it wasn't that I heard it once. I heard it over and over and over again. Stand up straight. Be proud you're an Indian. She was proud of the fact that she had Indian children. After starting her own family, Walking Stick decided to take her artistic career to the next level, receiving her MFA from the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn in 1975. She then began a long teaching career, which provided stability as she developed her work. And uh, I did some self-portraits in school. When I got out, I I tried all sorts of horrible things, most of them just terrible. Jean Cryptices that calls those paintings the paintings I did for myself. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good good mm-hmm. way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, you get out of school and you realize that you're not quite good enough yet. Right. And... Uh, I actually taught, and my first teaching of painting was for the night school, uh, adult night school, and that was probably 1962, something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. you know, really early. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would go into New York and look at things, yeah. you know, then go home, look at that canvas. Mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't doing, money was always an issue when it came to the paints. Mm-hmm. And so I was, uh, I wasn't perhaps painting as much as I would have liked, but I was painting all the time. 
I was also making all my own clothes mm-hmm. I, because I, you know, I, I can sew well. Mm-hmm. Don't bother to anymore, but and I enjoyed that, mm-hmm. and uh, I enjoyed cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I sound like a little Susie homemaker, but th- which is fine. I mean, this was part of my life mm-hmm. then, so I spent about ten years trying to hone my craft and uh, be kind of a mother. I read in a God Bless Beaver one of their newsletters that there was a fellowship available to older women, mm-hmm. older meaning, you know, a few years out of college, to go to graduate school. And it was one of these things that paid for everything, offered by the Danforth Foundation, Purina Dog Chow, right? But the Danforth Foundation had this wonderful fellowship, and I'm not sure how one was chosen, but I got the particulars on it. I read about it, and I thought, well, I, I want to go to graduate school, and it's the only way I can get better fast. I wasn't getting good enough fast enough right, on my own. I needed that impetus of graduate school. By the time I was 38, it's a lot of years to to think about what it was you wanted from your art Mm -hmm. and what you wanted from the art world and Mm -hmm. what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I came to realize, and it sounds arrogant now, but I wanted to be a major American artist, goddammit. And I, I had to make huge changes to do that in my work, in myself, in my home, everything. Mm-hmm. Had the women's movement had an, an impact on your thinking? Or had you had those thoughts long before? I think I had them long before, but mm-hmm. the women's movement probably sharpened them. I mean, I think she's rad because she, I mean, she keeps talking about she was, this was a, you know, growing up in the fifties and this is like the mentality. You, you marry someone, you have kids and you do that. But she, she was making, she was a painting throughout all of that. And even before she went to get an MFA and go on to do all her amazing things, it's a very special to be able to hear from her. It's one thing to go to a gallery and see a show and read a catalog. Feels somewhat, okay, this person made it. Like, it's the tip of the iceberg, you know? There's just so much, uh, so much more. I used Eccles, my husband's name was Eccles, for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is so awkward. And uh, when we married, I said, wouldn't you like to change your name to Walking Stick, Michael? He said, no, I'm really used to this name. And I said, well, I'm really used to Walking Stick, too. So eventually I just dropped the echoes altogether. Mm-hmm. But when I went to, um, was it Pratt? I would get letters saying, well, this isn't your name, you're married. I said, it's on my birth certificate. Mm-hmm. It's my name. Mm-hmm. But I did get a, you know, usually from secretaries yeah. would complain. 
And it was my man. I was experimenting a lot with different uses of material. But I also got very involved in my Cherokee heritage then, which I really hadn't been. I mean, the earliest paintings, um, these paintings, that I guess they're in here, some of the earliest paintings that I showed, like these. Me and my neon box and fantasy yeah, for January day. They were much 71. more about sexual enlightenment, mm -hmm. which was happening then. And, sure. it, you know, just accepting the fact that I'm a woman in a woman's body, mm -hmm. having a good time in a woman's body, mm -hmm. you know, is in these paintings. Mm -hmm. And the... Um, and the feminist uh, kind of view of ourselves as being potent, strong individuals, uh, sexually as well as everything other way, mm -hmm. was in these paintings. Mm -hmm. These were not about my Indian heritage. And I think one of the things that, in terms of expectations around meaning, you know, for me as a as a, as a an artist, an artist of color, and um, reading about her experience it's again like kind of that duality of being part of a group i guess a perceived group and it it's like a double-edged sword you know i mean i i certainly feel that um for myself where it's like okay well your work is figurative and you're you're like you're philippinex and you're dealing with these histories and um and what if my work like changed one day and i just made like something that was didn't seem to be about that you know like is that going to change the way that whether people are going to be interested in my work or not and i think like there's the other side of that which is like oh well you you come from this heritage so why don't you make work about that you know it's like there's this expectations against the backdrop of the women's movement the american indian movement and her own personal and artistic evolution Walking Six's work pivoted in the 1970s as she interrogated history and the future she wanted to create. The paintings from in Pratt started to get involved in my thoughts about my own Indian heritage and dealing with that. And I think the truth is that I, I hated my father for not being around. And yet, in a way, it wasn't his fault. I mean, he didn't leave my mother. She left him. Uh, she had to leave him. Um, but it was, it was time to reconcile that. Mm -hmm. um, my father died in 72. So it was not long yeah. after my father passed. Yeah. My mother died in 67. Mm. She was young. Yeah, she was uh, 69, which I think is young. I was I was her last kid, of course. So I was 33, I think, when she passed. I was trying to deal with the acceptance that I'm an Indian woman and that I, I look like him. I'm big and strong like he was. And I'm verbal like he was. You know, I have a lot of his traits, I think. Thank God I don't have a problem with alcohol. It was time that I figured out that whole relationship. And I made a, a teepee uh, called uh, Messages to Papa. And I wrote a letter to him in it that I forgave him and I hoped he forgave me for hating him all these years. And our, 
now perhaps hate is a strong word, but certainly I, there was an anger there um, that I hadn't had a dad, you know. Yeah. This was a painting, this piece, correct? No. Actual this actual sculpture. was an actual little teepee. It was about eight feet tall. Okay. I mean, a true teepee is, you know, huge, huge, huge. And I painted it with, uh, I just threw paint on it, really slung stained paint. Uh, my neighbors, I made it at home, and I remember the neighbors said, oh, isn't that sweet, you're making a teepee for the children. I said, yeah, why tell them? And I put a black band around it because he was dead, but also because I didn't want people going into it. And I, as I said, hung this letter inside. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a heartfelt rag. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nothing more, just, you know, kind of a big rag. But it kind of, it was important for me to make that, to deal with these emotions, but also to stimulate ideas for paintings. One of the few right. things my dad ever said to me was that um, I asked him who he thought were uh, really important, good Indians. And he's, oh, well, Chief Joseph, of course. And so that kind of got me on this trail of looking at Chief Joseph and what he'd done. And, and I've used that theme over and over again and started a, a series of small paintings uh, about, and they're really kind of an elegy. They're, they're masked. You know, there's a, there was originally, I think, 36 of them. They're all variations on a, a very formalist idea of two small arcs and two large arcs on a, a rectangular form painted with anything but brushes. Mm. And um, stained and then overlaid with uh, an encaustic. You know, everything was there. You know, a, a me, me, me. But, but it was about my heritage rather than my views of the sexual revolution and the feminist revolution. Mm -hmm. So the American Indian movement was uh, taking place at the same time as the feminist movement. And there weren't very many feminists who were uh, Indian as men, yeah. which is interesting, but I suppose worth a doctoral investigation, but not for me. And it was kind of all came together in my head mm -hmm. that I had to come to terms with all this in my background. Mm -hmm. That that in spite of the fact that my father um, certainly didn't fulfill any of his potential, he was still a, still my father and still the Indian, uh, raised in the. Indian territory, not born in the United States even. The, uh, his father was very involved in the uh, ch uh, change to statehood. Mm -hmm. The um, Indians were numbered, uh, you know, in, uh, in the 1890s, 1900. And the Dawes Commission was commissioned to number all the Indians. Mm -hmm. It was a way to uh, put the Indians all in camps, reservations, or simply camps. Yeah. They'd get them all on reservations, take their land, and uh, do it in a nice official bureaucratic way. <laughs> it's a nice bureaucratic way to destroy the Indians. Right. So that it was just one more step in the demise of the Indian nations in, in the United States. So the Dawes Commission was 
active. Uh, and in 1906, I believe, the Oklahoma became a state. And all that Cherokee land was divided up uh, into small parcels rather than just being the Cherokee Nation. It was divided up into parcels, and each uh, Indian, registered Indian, was given a parcel of land, which, of course, was horrible for the Indians because they weren't used to having private property. They were shared property, and, it, you know, it wasn't enough to really make a living on, and it was, well, it was about real estate. So my grandfather, the lawyer, was hired to be the translator and explicator of this law for the Cherokee people and so that they were all numbered and it's not the nicest thing he did but I I keep telling myself he was trying to get a fair deal for the Cherokees I'm not sure whether he just wasn't working for a living you know just making money who knows I didn't know him at all so anyway he was involved with the Dawes Commission and uh, I don't know how I got in this story but he, uh, so my father and all of us are registered as Cherokees, mm-hmm. but a lot of the, the Cherokees who were very traditional didn't want to have anything to do with the Dawes Commission right. and wouldn't sign up because screw them, those white people have just destroyed us and it's just another game to take advantage of us, which of course it was. I mean, she she speaks also about being a biracial person, but there is this, and I wouldn't say it's duality because it doesn't feel like they're two separate things. She talks about sensuality as well uh, a lot. I don't know. All I can say is like painting. It's it's so sensual. I mean, it's it's uh it's embodiment. You know, she's like it. It's embodied through her into the actual material of the paint. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that in terms of expectations around meaning um, and, you know, for me as a as as a an artist, an artist of color and the way that she continues to engage with painting, it's like very innovative. Like if she gets tired of something that she does something else. And that is just a great example for a person, artists like me. Um, to witness how she's continually engaged with painting and materials and concepts for a lifetime. We're just starting to talk about the diptychs, which began in the mid-80s, is that? Yeah. And how did that come about? I seem to change direction about every 10 years. And the directions are very often extreme, Hmm. abrupt, big changes. I don't do little changes, it seems to me. Right. Big changes. Um, I've always kind of admired people who, who stayed on this exactly the same path for 60 years, but that's not, not who I am. How did that all come about? I was making big abstractions, yeah. uh, which we actually haven't talked about, with my hands, layered and caustic, uh, using those shapes that had derived out of the teepee form mm-hmm. and combining it with this very... Um, diagrammatic, actually, 
kind of view of putting together these forms on a graph and then painting them so that they were very reduced. These were things like catching device with sweepings or a Yes, yes, okay. yes. They were very uh, reduced in their number of formal elements, mm-hmm. uh, very reduced in um, the way they were they came about in their design, very complex in their construction because it was double-layered paint, double-layered canvas glued together with raised shapes, and then I would paint on it with a um, saponified wax mixed with an acrylic uh, to get this very heavy-bodied, very um, beautiful, I thought, material mm-hmm. that I painted with, on my, with my hands and layered it and gouged it, right, mm-hmm. sometimes. So they were, the goal was to be very simplified uh, in their formal aspects and very complex in their emotional impact. Mm-hmm. That was the goal. Mm-hmm. I had been doing these for years, and um, I was very involved in this very uh, uh, dense uh, paint. And I, I, I love paint. I mean, what painter doesn't? But you know, these—I just loved all that glop. Mm. You know, I, I see the paintings in my head, but there's a lot of wonderful, wonderful painters who who worked. Uh, realistically, who have said so much through their paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the written word is not necessary. All of the energy is right there, and you can see it. During the 1980s, Walking Stick began to work with diptychs, pairing two canvases together whose contents generate their own dialogue. She also began to explore American landscapes and to incorporate more extensive Native American motifs throughout her paintings. The diptych kept coming up, and when I was trying to choose somebody, you know, out of all the histories that that we were kind of looking at, um, she happened to have a show up at Hale's Gallery as well. And, and I thought, well, this is, this is the person I need to dive into because she's just is in the air, you know? And I think w- some of the things that really stood out to me, what she spoke about um, was a diptych, which is she talks about the inside and the outside. I, I don't know if these are her words, but for me, like the visible and the invisible in terms of painting, I was so interested to to hear her oral history because I wanted to hear from a person who has dedicated her life to the craft of painting. You know, the, this idea of visual, that division, like that two pieces coming together to form one. It's very practical reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also happen to like the idea of the diptych and this dialogue between two sides. Obviously, it's important that one side is slightly different in some way from mm-hmm. the other. You can't have it exactly the same one. Make a diptych then. Yeah. Um, so it needs those patterns. Mm-hmm. But the patterns don't have to fill the thing right. anymore for me. And 
I suppose I could, I could stop doing diptychs now. I mean, I don't have a car to put them in anyway. But I really, maybe I like the speed bump. You know, it stops your eye a little bit in that line. What is it? Why is that there? Uh, and I kind of like that. It maybe slows you down a little bit, slows the eye down looking at things. Maybe it's just because it's mine. I mean, a lot of other people do diptychs, obviously, but... It's interesting, too, that you've talked about diptychs as being the interior and the exterior. Maybe they're also more similar now. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. More of a unified whole. And I feel that the diptych is... Um, I mean, I also use it a lot in my work, and I, I don't know if I thought about it the same way, but there is this gap in between these two things, even though they're butted up against each other. It's like a hyphen or um, like a gutter in comics where there's something, there's a little gap in between. I'm just curious about that question of like, what do those two things have to do with each other? Like if we, if we look at a painting, we should just be able to look at a painting and not read like a paragraph explaining what the painting is doing, you know, like, cause it is a little uncomfortable to look at something and not have an answer. You know, it's so funny with, with painting. It's like, it always just kind of ends up getting like really general. Like it's like, it's all our experiences of like, but honestly, like she said, um, towards the end there, she says, I really believe that everything we are, everything we've ever been, everything we think, everything we feel is eventually in the paintings. I think it all comes out. So thinking about like painting as a container and, um, almost like a, a record of experiences. I really want to make art that touches people's gut and heart with ideas. I want people to go home and think about what the hell was that woman talking about with that stuff. And the, uh, the paintings are, that are diptychs with an abstraction on one side and a, a realism of sorts on the other, I think were really confusing to people. Mm-hmm. And when I first started to do them, I didn't get a lot of huzzahs. Mm-hmm. There was not a lot of encouragement from people. Mm-hmm. It took a long time for people to come to them and because they wanted it to be, oh, well, this is a white world and this is an Indian world, which was not what it was. Right. It was not about that. It was right. about the inside and the outside of, of the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, to wax a little heavy. It was, uh, you know, about our experience of these mythic questions of life. Mm-hmm. And probably missed by a whole lot of people, because a whole lot of people aren't bringing that religious education that I have, or that desire to see it in any kind of philosophical light. My work has never sold like hotcakes, you know, it's never sold big. And it's actually recently, I've been doing quite well, but. I really think it was because the work was demanded so much of the viewer. It demanded a kind of education 
but it, it also demanded a, a seriousness, a gravitas, if you will, uh, on the part of the viewer. I, you know, I've been doing this stuff for a long time. I think that, that those who look at art accept and understand and get it. But when that, those first few paintings in 85, uh, people would just shake their heads and say, what on earth is going on? So in summary, uh, a couple of final questions. What about painting uh, originally appealed to you and continues to appeal to you? What is the essence of it that has held your attention over time? What does it do that no other art form can that's held your attention, your curiosity for four or five decades now? For one thing, painting's hard. And if, if it weren't uh, really challenging to me all the time, I, I maybe would have gone on to other things. But, and I'm always impressed when people think that, or say, oh, painting is easy. Well, it's never been easy for me. Uh, in fact, it's gotten harder as I've aged because I've set up bigger hurdles to leap over. To find a way to make abstraction was, at least for me, relatively easy. It got harder when I expected it, the painting to express uh, more complex, uh, more profound thoughts than I thought I was in the abstraction. You know, when you complicate the, the issue, I complicated the, the process, I complicated the content, uh, everything became more and more complicated partly to make it more challenging for myself. Mm -hmm. It might make it more exciting. I mean, but the wonderful thing about painting is that you can make it more complex mm -hmm. and more challenging as you grow in it. Yeah. I think that actually I'm a better painter than I was 50 years ago. Uh, I think I've learned uh, something about painting. Uh, I think my paintings actually say more. Uh, they may not speak to more people, I don't know about that, but they certainly uh, express more. Mm -hmm. And they, the, the part of the appeal of painting altogether is the extreme challenge of it. It's not a simple art form, it's not click-click. It just isn't. There's a whole lot of it to it. And I I love the feel of paint. I love the look of paint. I love the look of, of great paintings. What I like in painting, what I like in art, is this sense that you can speak through it. And I expect others to do the same. I, I want to look at paintings that talk to me, that tell me something, that uh, move me in some way, that give me an idea about being a human on the planet. And as a matter of fact, I think that is my goal in that I want people to come to the work and have a notion of what it's about being a human on the planet. You know, what does this mean to us? And I would like to think that my work goes beyond simply a uh, statement about heritage my personal heritage, I would like to think of it as um, it's about 
the human race, not just native people. And that's been important for me for years, this notion of we're all in this together, and I'd like the paintings to somehow express that, that this is a shared experience that we have, which was part of the reason for doing the dancers, by the way. It, was, mm. it seemed like a universal image, the dancing figures. People dance all over the world for all different sorts of reasons, mourning as well as joy. And I like that, the universality of that image. But I, I expect that of all painting, that kind of, it's, it's talking to me from a specific era, very often a specific place, and yet it speaks of something bigger. What I'm doing today, I don't think, has that sense of newness, although it certainly has an individual uh, stamp of, you know, this is Kay Walkingstick's work. Does my work fit into the uh, critical discourse, as they so love to say? I don't think so. Does that matter to me? Not a lot. And yet the truth is I think my work is stronger than it's ever been, or certainly as strong as it's ever been. Thank you. You're welcome. I wonder what I'll be doing at 90. Although she's not quite 90, Polly Leo was curious about what Walking Sick is up to at 87. She's still painting, having just opened a new show in New York, so Polly Leo called Walking Sick to follow up on a few lingering questions. Good morning. This call is being recorded. Good morning. Okay, so we are being recorded now. So my first question is, what is the role or responsibility of an artist? Oh, well... Um, they're the same as all of us on the planet, to love and take care of one another. I think that's our primary responsibility. And uh, I think that artists, uh, as, uh, as artists, rather than just humans on the planet, I think we are... We have a role to point up the beauty and the joy uh, of life, as well as the difficulties. I think we are the um, visual historians of our era, and I think that that's a, an important point, and, you know, that sometimes is overlooked. And the second question I have for you, it had to do with your mentors and what what is something that a mentor taught you that that you've never forgotten i can't honestly say that i had an artistic mentor i mean i didn't have someone and I, that's a it's unfortunate but it's it's just the way things you know happen and so the strongest advice that i ever had in my life the most important help i had with dealing with who i was and as a painter, was from my mother, who 
told me every day to stand up straight and be proud that I was a Cherokee. And I think that that has affected my whole life. The other thing that she said when I was a little girl uh, was, a smart little girl like you should make something of herself. And I've been trying to make something of myself ever since. You probably don't realize that nobody, no women were mentored in the 50s and 60s. Because, for one thing, nobody took us seriously because we were pretty young things that were going to go off and have babies. So there were very few women artists working. Seriously, you know, there were very few. There were some, but they're pretty much on their own. And men didn't give you mentoring. Uh, At least, I suppose they could. But... The thing was, is if a guy was offering to uh, mentor you, you had to be suspicious that he was just wanting to get in your pants. I mean, those were the days of that's what happened, you know? I have one more thing I just thought of that I'd like to tell you that my mother said. My mother was just full of aphorisms. Uh, She said, you know, Kay, it's a man's world. So you have to be better than the men. And that won't be hard for you. (laughs) (laughs) Your mom sounds amazing. She was amazing. And she was, she gave me so much confidence. What do you, what is your legacy? I don't know. I don't know what my legacy is really. I, I think I'm hoping um that people see my present work as a statement about the beauty and the importance of our planet our green planet and that it is all of the land here in this continent is indian land it's all indian land it's all indian territory and that's an important thing for people to recognize And the other important thing is that it's the only planet we've got and we really have to take care of it or we're going to lose it and ourselves as well. Um, Is that what you mean by legacy? I don't know. Uh, I think that throughout my work, there's a, a lot of my work, I should say, has dealt with history. A lot of it has dealt with life and death, which, of course, history is all about. And I I think that I've been trying to deal with things that are not superficial nor momentary. They are things that we've dealt with for eons. And I may be a historian, visual historian for this era, but I hope that my work transcends this era. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Kuang, and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble 
with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. The Archives is grateful to Maya Cruz Halileo for their time, insight, and inspiration. This guest-curated episode receives support from the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative. Special thanks to Gabriela Seno for her contributions to this episode. And an extra special thanks to Kay Walkingstick. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.